Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. The Baddest Art Friend, part of the Constellation series curated by Roosevelt Tan. There's no such thing as a new idea, but what happens when your writing draws on the people in your life, and what happens when they don't want to be written about? Taking as inspiration the bad art friend tussle over telling someone else's story that dominated literary conversations in the US last October, join Madeline Chapman, editor of the spin-off and author of books on Jacinda Ardern and Stephen Adams, Rebecca K. Riley, winner of the 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards Best First Book of Fiction for Greta and Valden, and Hamali McInnes, author of essay collection The Unexpected Patient, for an exploration of where their boundaries lie when it comes to writing their own and other people's lives into their work. This session is chaired by Muhammad Hassan. Welcome everyone to the Auckland Writers' Festival. Are we excited? <laughs> good, good. A lot of energy for a Friday afternoon. I love it. So this is a special and hopefully provocative event titled Baddest Art Friend. The event is part of the Constellation series curated by the fabulous Rosabel Tan, who is Ooh. just over here. Can we give Rosabel a round of applause? <laughs> my name is Mohammed Hassan, and it's my distinct pleasure to introduce you to these three esteemed writers. So let's get ahead to the introductions. First up, I'd like to bring on stage Madeline Chapman, who is the editor of the spin-off, the author. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> sorry, in my head I was gonna read out the entire thing and then bring them oh, on in one. That's fine. <laughs> I like I like I like this enthusiasm. So we'll give you another round of applause at the end. But let me read her bio here, which is super impressive. Madeline Chapman is the editor of the spin-off the author of Jacinda Ardern, the, a, a, a new kind of leader, and co-writer of Stephen Adams' autobiography, Stephen Adams, My Life, My Fight. She has also represented Samoa and cricket and was the New Zealand Javelin champion in 2013 and 2017. Ooh, cool. Now, all of that deserves a round of applause. Can we give Madeline Chapman a clap? Next up, we have Dr. Hamali McInnes. Please make your way to the stage. <laughs> Dr. Hamali is an Auckland-based GP <laughs> who works with patients in both clinical and prison settings. Thank you guys for rearranging <laughs> yourself. She writes short stories, flash, flash fiction, and poetry. Her debut book is the fantastic essay collection, The Unexpected Patient. Dr. Hamali McInnes. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, please welcome to the stage Rebecca K. Riley. <laughs> Rebecca is a graduate of Tereheringawaka Victoria University's International Institute for Modern Letters and their creative writing program. She is the winner of the 2019 Adam Foundation Prize. Her debut novel, of course, is Greta and Valden, which won Best First Fiction Book at this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Please give a massive round of applause. <laughs> Now, before we get started, just a few housekeeping tidbits. Uh, if you have your phone with you, please make sure that it's on silent, uh, unless you feel super proud of your ringtone choices and want to share them with everybody. Uh, 
there's a lot of you that are wearing masks here, which is really great. Um, if you are able to wear your masks, please do so. It makes everybody feel comfortable and safe. I know we're not wearing masks, but this is the weird time that we're in right now, so please bear with us. If at any point in time you feel unwell, uh, please don't feel shy to sneak out, make your way out through the uh, exit. And then if you feel better, then you can sneak your way back in again. <laughs> now, I know a lot of you have uh, probably some super provocative and invocative questions that you want to throw at these fantastic writers, and we will have time at the end, so please keep them ready. Think about what you want to say and make sure that it's the best question you've ever said to anybody, ever. <laughs> but no pressure. <laughs> Okay, so the singer Philip Labes has a song that's called Never Date a Writer. And the song goes like this. Sure, when you're together, things will feel just fine. But you were not together, you were researched the whole time. <laughs> it's okay if you don't know who Philip Labes is, I don't know who he is either. I googled <laughs> some information about writers and, and, um, and fiction and this is what came up. But it feels very appropriate. It's actually a pretty good song. You should check it out. But the sentiment is true. If you or someone you know has the misfortune of having a writer in their life, be it a partner, a family member, a friend, or even a medical practitioner, <laughs> then you run the terrible, terrible risk of befalling the fate known as becoming a muse. I hate to break this to you, but your bad art friend could be mining you for material and you might find yourself immortalized in a work of fiction, an essay, or even a poem. So how do writers stop themselves from becoming their own version of the baddest art friend? Well, I'm hoping our panel today can figure it out. I'm going to smoothly transition from the lectern <laughs> to the seat. I don't know what other way is possible. But thank you, the three of you, for being here today. Let's get the conversation started. I want to start with you, Madeline. Can you tell us, in your opinion, as a writer, as an editor, what you think a bad art friend is? Uh, I think perhaps the key word there would be friend. <laughs> I think <laughs> a lot of people maybe f would feel that they've been bad art friended, but it's just a journalist doing their job writing about people, and so there can become this weird connection of having an interview where you feel like you've connected, and then that goes up, and then you feel misrepresented, which does happen a lot, yeah. um, and is bound to happen. And so I think with, with bad art friend, it is, it is really those people very, very close to you. And I think to make, to make you a bad art friend, it's, it's essentially doing it perhaps with a bit of either ignorance or arrogance that their perception of, of their own actions is not relevant to your telling of the story mm. um, and we are all I suppose privileged in being able to tell stories in a way that some people cannot and so there is that responsibility to make sure that you are allowing other people to have their stories told without it just being entirely you and I'm guilty of that as well I've been a bad art person um, <laughs> to a few people but yeah I think it would be um, sort of taking taking other people's stories and making them your own. I think if you're telling your own story, it's going to include other people, and that's not being a bad art friend. That's just being maybe a little bit um, inward-looking. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I think it would, it would be um, when, the tail, when the scales tip and it becomes more about your friend than about you, then that's when you start getting into the bad art friend territory. 
Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but, but you did mention that you were, have been guilty of being a bad <laughs> art person in the past. Yes. And I want to ask you specifically about kind of a character-defining mm -hmm. incident that happened very early on in your writing career uh, that involved a very beloved New Zealand author. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell us what happened? The first <laughs> piece I ever had published in my life, which I wrote when I was at university and I was just a student studying um, a Bachelor of Arts, was about Eleanor Catton. It was about me <laughs> being a fan of Eleanor Catton. And I wrote it in the same way that if you saw your favourite author at a supermarket, you would probably go home and tell everyone in your house that you s just saw your favourite author. And that was kind of what I was doing. I was seeing her and then telling my friends, oh my God, I keep seeing Eleanor Catton, and it was kind of great. And then one friend said, why don't, you write it, why don't you write it down? It's a funny story. So I did. And it was all very self-deprecating and, and all of that. And then I just included it in a sample when I asked for an internship at the spin-off, not thinking it would be published. Mm. And they said, oh, we'd love to publish this. <laughs> and then suddenly it had this big audience and it was just the story that I'd been telling in the same way that you tell a story at a party, except it was on a site that journalists work for and kind of suddenly looked like a journalist doing this work and um, sort of deliberately in service of telling the story as opposed to it was just kind of me as a 19-year-old mm -hmm. embarrassing myself in front of Eleanor Catton multiple <laughs> times <laughs> and thinking it would be funny if people read about that. So that I would never write that story now because I, I am a journalist and a writer and I know that there is a sort of trust involved and there's a power shift now, but it definitely does. When I look back, I sort of go with my how I am now. I go, oh, that's a bit... Um, I could imagine reading that if someone did that to me and being like not not very happy about it. Mm. But at the same time, I was an idiot. I was a teenager, um, and it worked. It got me a job, and now here I am. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all balance, I suppose. Exactly. There's wins and losses in that one. Yeah. And it was also a situation I imagine where you would have had no conception that Eleanor Catton was going to read the piece herself. Oh, absolutely not. I would have written it probably quite differently <laughs> if, I, if I thought so. Um, and now that I'm an editor and I get people pitch stories like that to me, I'm very careful to make sure that they know that the person that is mentioned in the story will likely read it because New Zealand is small. And I think that was not mentioned to me when I pitched it. Mm. I just sort of went, great you're going to pay me $100, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to publish this story. And so, and potentially there were all sorts of other dynamics going on at the time with the people who decided to edit it and put it up and that sort of thing, which I was blissfully unaware of. Mm. Um, and now that I am aware of those dynamics, I'm quite careful when particularly first-time writers say, I want to write about going along to, the, you know, this experiential thing, and I can kind of see into the future a little bit and see that they will might regret it later. So mm. I like to warn them. It's mm. a good, good, good word of warning there from an editor. Mm. Uh, Rebecca, speaking of New Zealand being a small place, mm -hmm. uh, your novel Greta and Valden is uh, all about how claustrophobic a place like Auckland can be. Your characters constantly bump into each other, they bump into exes, they bump into people <laughs> they don't want to see. How, when it comes to building a story like that, when it comes to building the characters that feel so rich and so familiar, do you draw inspiration from people in your life, from your friends, from people that you hang out with in a city like this? Or is everything 
completely blank page. I personally hate writing about my own life or anyone that I've met. Mm. I did it once for an exercise at, at in my master's where we had to write about ourselves from the perspective of someone else. And so, yeah, I have th like maybe three pages of my book where it was based on something that actually happened to me and I did get called out. <laughs> Everything else, I think that like, uh, I, I get a lot that, um, I was actually asked to do an event at another writers festival about, um, with people who all write based on their lives. And I had to tell this person very awkwardly on the bus and it was my first time out of lockdown at the end of last year. I was freaking out and I was having to go to this photo shoot, which just seemed bizarre and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and then this person called me and was like, we'd love for you to come to our writers' festival and talk about how you wrote this book based on your own life. Mm. And I was like, oh, I haven't done that. <laughs> and this person's like, no, I've read your book. You have. Wow. And I was like, no, no I'm so sorry. <laughs> None of these things except for one of them <laughs> has ever happened to me in my life. Mm. And I think that, um, like, I was arguing with a friend of mine recently who asked our prose group chat how many, how, like, what percentage our writing is based on our lives. And I said, maybe 5%. And then she was like, well, I've actually read your book, and um, there's a reference to uh, Australians calling hot dogs on a stick Dagwood dogs, and you told me that your ex-girlfriend told you that, so therefore your book is based on your life. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, where's the line of knowing about things <laughs> or kind of being aware of concepts and then mm. that's, you know, counting as your book being based on your life. Mm. And uh, I mean, I don't know, the argument wasn't resolved and I just got really upset and then I went and saw the Minions movie. <laughs> <laughs> Did that help or make things worse? Oh, I cried in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess that, that, I mean, that could be a testament to how much of a familiarity people feel with the characters in your book and mm -hmm. the story. And your characters do feel incredibly specific. I feel that any number of these characters, when I've gotten to spend time with them, I know so many details about their life that I might not have wondered about. Uh, so how do you go through the process of building these characters from scratch? Where does that idea for them come from? Um, I don't know. I think that um, I'm very detail-oriented. I like see details before I see big picture. So I think, I haven't, I, like, also I haven't written any fiction for like three years, so it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that usually I'll just sort of think of some kind of broader philosophical concept or I like, and then kind of connect that with something that I've seen, like somebody at the movies being like really angry. You know, who here has been to the Rialto Newmarket? They have the, <laughs> <laughs> the worst queuing system. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to work there when I used to work for Ticketmaster at the being the film festival person. And everyone was so angry with me because I couldn't give them an ice cream because I didn't work there. I was just like doing film festival tickets. Um, and then so you like see these people just like enraged and being like, I want to, I just want my ticket now and like trying to like give me like a hundred dollar note for some movie that I'm like not selling. Um, <laughs> if I see something like that and then I might think of an idea like, oh, I could 
in my story have a character who go is like on a date with someone who is like really angry at the movies and the other person finds it extremely off putting. Like I would be inspired by like that kind of thing, but I wouldn't describe the actual people I saw that would Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like writing nonfiction, like yeah. I think for that reason. I do have to ask you though, you mentioned that there were aspects of the book that you were called out on. Uh, I mean, what was it about that that upset people potentially? What, what some, did somebody recognize themselves in the book? Somebody recognized someone that they believed to be an acquaintance of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty flimsy connection. <laughs> but they didn't say who, they didn't name names. Mm. And then so I was like, well, I don't know. But I mean, like, a few <laughs> times people have, actually, like, when my friends read it, well, firstly, my um, my friend who I used to go out with messaged me saying, did I ruin your life when I went to Argentina and didn't tell you that I bought the ticket? <laughs> and I was like, no, I actually wrote that part of the book before you did that. <laughs> 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 and then he messaged me saying, oh, all good then, I'm drunk. <laughs> And then even, like, my friend's girlfriend was, like, uh, she, you know, it was reported to me via my friend. She's like, oh, Maddie's really upset because you wrote about how she got that big lesbian haircut after she came out. <laughs> and I was like, everyone does that. <laughs> I didn't even know that she'd done that, you know, things like that. So you could almost put a disclaimer at the beginning of the book saying that any... Anything that resembles reality or fiction is completely a fabrication. Yeah. I mean, even one person was like, oh, like, I, am, I work in the English department at the University of Auckland, and this writer has just, you know, just kind of explained exactly what our department's like. And I was like, well, that's really sad, because <laughs> <laughs> I've never been a part of that department, and I'm sorry that it's like that. <laughs> 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 you know, I studied German. There was, like, three people working in that department. And most of the time they were like, oh, I'm in Germany, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move from fiction, which could be misconstrued. People can understand what they want to understand, maybe invoke meaning into it where it doesn't belong. And nonfiction, which is quite specific, right? And, and uh, Himali, you wrote a book essentially about the experiences of yourself as a medical practitioner, but other medical practitioners, and the stories that they've interacted with and the patients they've interacted with. Some of the stories are quite detailed and some of them are quite intimate. There's a lot of horrific things that happen to some of these people. How did you set out to write a book like this and did you know from the beginning that there would be ethical considerations to how you approached it? Um, definitely, I mean, as medical practitioners, we are taught to delineate between you know, um, patient confidentiality mm -hmm. and be really clear about that. Only one chapter in the book um, is my own story with my own patient. So obviously those rules had to apply to that particular chapter. But what the, um, the advice was from the medical legal people was that if I'm writing about other medical practitioners and their patients, then I'm actually just being a writer <laughs> and th those rules don't apply to me but they apply to the person who I'm interviewing. Mm. So they still have to respect their patient's confidentiality. Um, and we, I mean, obviously we interviewed the patients themselves. And, um, and it's interesting because I think in New Zealand, m maybe if I wrote this book in America or Australia or I don't know, 
a bigger place. People would not be uh, want to be anonymized, but mm. almost most of my subjects wanted to be anonymous, and I find that quite interesting. I thought maybe it's just a, a New Zealand thing, you know, <laughs> that kind of a, you know you don't really want to put yourself out there. Um, and I also changed details and um, yeah, changed the sex in some circumstances to make people more anonymous. Mm. Yeah. So the the piece that you mentioned that was your own experience. Yeah. Your patient, you know, you changed the name to Adama. Yeah. Um, but this is a person that battled with addiction, had history of abuse. Yeah. Um, and told you quite a lot of really intense uh, personal things. Correct. When you began to write that story about them, mm. how did you go about? opening the conversation about, hey, I want to write your story in this book? Well, I, with all the interviewees, I explained what the concept of the book was, you know. It's about a, a patient encounter that really changed their medical professional. And my patient was felt honoured. They were like, oh, sure, I've never had anybody write about me. <laughs> um, but to be fair, when, um, when they read the first iteration of the chapter, they were quite upset, you know, because nothing was untrue in what, what I'd written, but I think to see it in black and white was really quite quite stark for them and quite powerful. And I gave them full control to just change what they liked mm. because I wanted them to be happy before it went to publication, and they did. And they were really happy and, uh, you know, got their signed copy. And, and it was kind of a nice thing for them in one sense because they knew that also their story was relevant to other people who'd had the same stuff happen to them. So in that sense, it was sort of a, a, a catharsis in some way, I hope, anyway, for them, yeah. And so you made sure that with all of the people that you wrote about, essentially, that they did have the opportunity to, to see what was being written about them, even if their names were anonymized. Correct, yeah. Mm. So uh, that brings up an interesting question, right? And I think, um, Madeline, we were talking specifically about how this works in journalism mm. or how it doesn't work. Um, and as a journalist myself, there's a lot of situations where you interview someone and afterwards they want to see a copy of what you're about to publish. And I mean, most journalists I know aren't too comfortable with that. Mm. How do you deal with that as a journalist yourself or also as an editor? I think it depends on who the subject is. Sometimes you are writing a story for the sake of furthering or getting uh, exposure to a certain story. And obviously if the subject is not happy, that is a lose-lose for both of you. Other times uh, the whole point is you don't, you know, you're interviewing someone who's um, done something bad or has been accused of something and you're not going to be checking their approval before you put that out. But I think the... The interesting thing is that no one, virtually no one, no matter how much you think, especially when you do profiles and that sort of thing, sometimes I write a profile and I'll go, I think I really, I really got it. This mm. person's going to really like this. And then they, I think I profiled Rose Matafel, um last year or the year before. And, you know, I spent a bunch of time with her. We went up, did archery together <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> went over to Waiheke. We did all sorts of stuff. And... She had previously hated doing interviews because she always felt very misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's no pressure there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote it, and it was I was very proud of it. And she read it, and she was like, it's all accurate, and I hate it. <laughs> that was what she said. So you saw too much. Yeah, and she um. was like, well, at least it was funny, because I think most people sort of try to paint her as more serious than she is. But... 
Yeah, and so I think no one really likes reading about themselves. It's like um, seeing a photo of yourself from the side or something. It's <laughs> it's uh, horrifying. So <laughs> so no one's ever going to actually be happy, no matter how well you think you've done it. At a certain point, you just have to draw the line mm. and go, for the sake of, you know, the readers are not going to view this the same as the subject and kind of just trust that you've done the right thing. Mm. Um, but we very rarely let people sign off on um, on what we write and sometimes people insist on signing off on a quote kind of without realising the power that writers have that they can sign off on a quote and verbatim go yep this is what I want to say and if you put he spat <laughs> at the end of it it's a completely different <laughs> quote you've just, you know, or if you just put a line after it being like there was a long silence or something, <laughs> it's suddenly it doesn't really matter, you know, like the actual quote, it's like, a, yeah, writers kind of have that power and most don't use it overtly, mm. but there would definitely be some who, who choose for the sake of the story to put a little adjective here or there and um, suddenly change what was otherwise a fairly mild interaction. <laughs> Hamali, uh, was there anyone of your patients or, or, or the, the patients that you wrote stories about that read what they, what you'd written about them and then was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want this to happen. I don't want it to go out into the world. Yeah, so there was, I mean, there was supposed to be 15 chapters in the book. There's 14 chapters now. And basically I went through the same process with everybody. Uh, you know, they could change what they wanted um, and et cetera, and made sure that they were completely happy. And then about two weeks before printing date, <laughs> somebody changed their mind. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was quite gut-wrenching for me because, you know, it's an it's, it's interesting intersection between what is your work and what is their story. And, you know, and that was, uh, and I was like, oh, my gosh, but I put, like, hours into this. And, you know, and, but at the end of the day, it was their story. And, um, uh renowned writer friend of mine said, oh, don't worry about it, just publish it. <laughs> but, um, but he doesn't work in um, the medical sphere. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so and, and my publisher and the legal person with the publishing company were like, ah, we can't publish it. So anyway, we had to retract it. And I guess only I and a small group of people know that it's not there. But it's, it was still quite gut-wrenching. And I think it was the right decision to take it out. But... It was also a really good chapter, and it painted that person in a good light, you know, a brave light. And it was more that it was just, uh, it was quite triggering for them to reread that chapter. And you have to really be aware of it. Everything that we write, when it goes into the public sphere, we have this huge voice, right? And it kind of amplifies people's stories. Mm -hmm. And it's that whole um, balance between freedom of speech and being kind to people, I guess, or being respectful of other people. And there is a good balance that we can, we can strike. It's not only our thing to tell. I think especially of Israel <laughs> Fallout and what he did you know, a few years ago when he uh, did some stuff on Twitter. And I was like, when you're, when, you have, when you're a big sports star and you have a big audience, you have greater responsibility to have better freedom of speech, you know, to have, uh, have good speech. Yeah. And then that issue of power is important, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's the idea that you as a writer have a platform and have a voice and yeah. not everybody, even the people that you're writing about, don't really have that yes. same privilege. Correct. Yeah. Rebecca, was there anything 
that you written initially in the book that you had to take out because it was a little too close to home or rang too true? Um, I don't think so. I mean, some of the stuff I took out because I was like, oh, this is too edgy. <laughs> <laughs> How edgy is too edgy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're like kind of this, because obviously when I wrote my manuscript, I didn't know that it was going to be published. And sometimes I was really pissed off with the people in my class. So it was like digs it. <laughs> like comments that people had made and stuff, which, you know, is not necessary. And also I like wrote it really fast and I was like really tired a lot of the time. So sometimes I was like, oh, this is so funny. And then just write this like, you know, like a d whole page that was just nothing. Mm -hmm. But not because I, you know, not because it was like too close to home or anything. I think that... Um, I don't really mind, I, yeah, I don't mind seeing, I wouldn't mind seeing myself, like, if someone else wrote about me, I'm, which has happened several times, um, <laughs> this is what happens when you get involved with the poetry community, <laughs> like you you know, you're at a reading and you're like, oh god, yeah, I did do that. <laughs> Have you um, ever so been called out on a poetry stage? called out but you know you know you like hear a poem and you're like oh this is like clearly a subtweet of <laughs> how i broke up with you <laughs> <laughs> um so i think that i'm like kind of used to this like oh you could appear anywhere it's like that's what art is um so i wouldn't yeah i don't care if people write about me but i don't really want to write about them back um, <laughs> <laughs> um but i think i mean like even I came to the Writers' Festival in 2019 because someone was having a book launch and my friend had gone out with that person in the past and she was like, oh, we've got to go to the book launch to get the book to find out if I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we were there. And then, <laughs> and then s people kept asking us, like, oh, are you friends of the author? Do you guys know each other from uni? Did you all go to art school together? And then my friend was just like, couldn't say anything and she just cracked up. And I was like, oh, we, we're, we're writing students. <laughs> we were just in, we just wanted to be here. We couldn't be like, oh, my, my friend met this author, like had a few Tinder dates with this author and we just need to see if that's any of that's depicted in this book. <laughs> but we didn't realize it was going to be $37 and we can't afford it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of money for a scandal. <laughs> I mean, I've since read the book. I don't think she was in it. <laughs> she, she wasn't in it. That's a shame. <laughs> it's interesting how people get equally offended if they're written about or if they're not written. Yeah. 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 Like if you... Sometimes you think you're doing the right thing by going, I'm just going to focus on what I felt in this situation and I'll leave everyone else out because that, you know, not their, not my story to tell. And then they go, I was right there with you. How did you not mention that? And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I think people kind of want... People want to be noticed and, and remembered, mm. but then sometimes it can be quite jarring when when you uh, notice a bit too much. Mm. You know, mm. when you think no one's watching and then somebody goes, oh, yeah, so-and-so did this, you know, even if it's just a little habit um, and it's a thing that they thought no one had noticed their whole life, then it can be quite scary. Mm. To find so out something about yourself that nobody had told you before, mm. but now it's been written in a piece. <laughs> mm -mm. That is quite uh, alarming. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting point about being noticed too much versus being noticed too little, which is also pretty jarring for some people. 
Hmm. I remember a piece that you re- wrote a couple of years ago about attending Max Key's DJ set <laughs> and writing about that <laughs> and then feeling kind of uneasy that even though technically, I mean, you weren't punching down, this is somebody that had a status of privilege, you still felt uncomfortable about being in that space to write. Why, why did you feel that? I think because I had, until that point, all of my writing, because I had no journalism or writing qualifications, so all of my writing was literally just a long Facebook status of a story about something silly I did. And so I was only used to doing something and then after the fact going, oh, that's funny, I'll write about it. And this was very early on in my internship, and it was the first time I had ever gone to a thing deliberately to write about the experience, knowing that I wouldn't enjoy it. Mm. Mm. (laughs) So my best stories were things that ended up being quite terrible in the moment and were funny afterwards. And this one, I was like, I know this is going to be terrible in the moment, and I'm going to do it deliberately. (laughs) And then that's where I went, oh, I don't actually like... Yeah. doing that that felt too sort of premeditated and it was like it was a fine story it was just I mean he was also he was doing the work himself kind of looking ridiculous so <laughs> I didn't need to, I didn't need to write the story the um, but it was quite I, I kind of I liked the fact that I didn't like that because I think it can be very easy to um because those stories are easy to write. Like, that was read a lot. People people loved that story. Um, but it felt a bit untrue to... Um, yeah, so I think then when people get annoyed about other stories that I write, and I go, well, that was just, that was just a thing that happened. And then I wrote about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't me sort of plot. I'm not organised enough to plot, <laughs> to plot those sorts of things in advance. Um, but... He, I mean, he hated that. I think him and um, John Key. No, him no. and some, him <laughs> and some true terrible person. I can't remember. Are they like the only two people who have blocked me on all social media? Oh. <laughs> so mm. yes, the other one, I don't mind because I, I don't even know who he is now. But he was bad. But <laughs> I did feel a bit bad that um, Max Key felt like he had to block me <laughs> from <laughs> from his life. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that again was very young and figuring it out, um, and obviously would not write something like that mm. Mm. now because it would feel very um, sort of reductive. Yeah. But also, still love to write about myself, unfortunately. So um, maybe I'll just hang out with Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't mind being written about. I like writing about myself. <laughs> the people around me could be a match made in heaven. <laughs> Himali, I wanted to ask you, because you don't just write non-fiction, you also are quite a prolific short short fiction writer, you love writing fiction, I don't know if you're working on anything at the moment, but (laughs) where does the inspiration for that come from? Does it ever bleed into your professional life? Totally. So I've definitely, well, I mean, a couple of times, there is this um, older lady who I sort of, what's the word, um, I volunteer to take her places and stuff through age consent. So she's not a patient, but she totally made her way into one of my stories because she's, um, you know, she's, she, she's had lots of hard stuff happen in her life, but she's also quite an interesting character and she's quite grumpy. So, <laughs> so and, um, but then I, I, again, I changed the details and, and so on. And there was also another story, a short story I wrote that was based on a little Pacifica child. But 
since I've written that story, it's made me really, and with the whole furore that's happened in the media about cultural ap appropriation, it's made me rethink that story because I am clearly, although I'm brown, I'm not Pacifica brown, you know? And although I had loads of patients who were Pacifica, I've never actually lived in somebody's house who, and been a Pacific person. Um, and I love, I love the culture, but then again, I can't just appropriate it. Um, when does it become representative rather than just appropriation? And I think if I was to come back to that story uh, before I publish it, I would definitely get a panel of people who are Pacific to read it and give, it, give, give their feedback. And um, even then, you prob I probably won't be completely safe, but at least then people know that you've tried, you know? Mm. Um, because, again, like Madeline was saying, you can be reductive in how you see other cultures, totally, because I'm seeing it through my eyes, and I, you know, my eyes are different. Um, I may think I've written a great story, but uh, a proper character would be rich and flawed and have you know, have unusual pursuits like beekeeping, for example, you know, and, and not be not be just a reductive stereotype. Of the beekeeping community. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am a beekeeper and, and I am this sort of person who I turn up to these beekeeping things and the room is full of older white men, <laughs> you know, and here I am. So, yeah, so it's I always have that sort of jarring dissonance of, of being a beekeeper. That's fascinating. What kind of scandals happen in the beekeeping ah. community? <laughs> I want to know, stealing of manu Manuka honey. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, that's actually an interesting uh, point about identity and about writing about people's identity and communities and, and what you're able to write from somebody that exists in that space versus other people's spaces. Rebecca, does that idea, does that um, thought come to you when you write about the identity of your characters? Yeah, I guess I, I just wouldn't think of writing a character with an identity that was like hugely different from my own. I mean, I read I read an essay that someone wrote once um, and they had like been to a panel talk and then after that they had been like, now, I, now that I've heard these writers speak, I know that I could never write a character who wasn't the same gender as me. Mm. So from now on, I'll only be writing female characters. And I was like, okay, that's probably a little bit too far. Mm. Um, but I definitely wouldn't want to like heavily write into a space that I felt like I didn't understand mm. Mm. or that I was like at risk of not understanding. Mm. I'm one of those people that kind of like hates saying something if I think that it might be wrong. I'm so shit at guessing games because I'm like, oh, I need more context. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it. But I think that like, I think that's interesting that it like seems to come up like really, just hard out for some people. They're like, why can't I write this character who's this Maori drug addict? Mm. And you're like, why would you want to do that? Mm. Like, you could just do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like, oh, like, one time when I was 18, I was in this university course where we all, it was like a writing test. And, um, and you had to think of, like, two characters, you had to think of a character, and then you, everyone had to go around and say what they were. And then one guy was like, I'm going to do a whirling dervish. <laughs> and then the next round, you had to, like, make up a name for your character. And then he had to, like, put his hand up and be like, excuse me, does anyone know any Turkish names? <laughs> <laughs> picked anything and then this kind of just went on and on he was like does anyone know any names of places in Turkey or like mm. 
Why mm. did you pick the whirling dervish? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like like rolled himself into a corner. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I guess that raises an interesting uh, you know, concept, which is imagination, right? Because the things that pique our imagination are unusual stuff or things that we don't... I, I yeah. mean, for me anyway, I w- uh, when I me- you know, find out something new about something, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I go, go and Google it and, and learn about it. And that can spark a story or a piece of fiction. And do we stop doing that as writers? Because I, I think that is probably our bread and butter. Um, and I don't really want to stop doing that, but I also want to be safe. <laughs> I think that's why I d- I'm quite terrified of fiction, is that when you're doing non-fiction, particularly journalism, there is a safety and you everyone has agreed that you were just observing people and you were mm. just writing what you've observed. And mm. as soon as you take that story for yourself and whether you're writing fiction or you're creating characters, you suddenly are the expert on that character Mm. as opposed to just perhaps somebody watching from over there. Mm. And so I think I quite like whether it's observing as yourself and um, the people around you or it allows, it sort of to an extent allows you to write about, for me at least, um, more people because I go well I'm just going to come in and everyone knows that I obviously have not lived this life but I will just say what I see and mm. um, let the readers take from that what they will without mm. assuming that that is the whole world of this person mm. Mm. Um, and yeah I mean I admire anyone I just also have no mind's eye so I admire anyone who can just come up with things um, cobble together different aspects because mine is more just like write what you see mm. and mm. nothing really nothing more mm. I remember when I f- first started doing journalism I uh, I mean one of the my driving forces for me was that I thought that s- stories about my community were being terribly told mm. and I realized once I got into newsrooms was that nobody had any idea what they were talking about mm. it wasn't like this malicious thing mm. but then after a while I started doing these stories because I cared about them because I could do them well mm. but I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a Muslim journalist, mm, mm. which oftentimes I started mm. to feel like I was falling into and I tried to fight against. Mm. Have any of you felt that pressure that, that you need to only write stories or that you need to represent your communities when you're writing? Mm. Oh, all the time. Mm. Like. Mm. It's, it's, it's almost insufferable. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, like, I'm sorry that I was kind of like born with all of these identities. <laughs> and I think that it's really hard um, like as a writer, like being asked to be in events, you know, you get asked to do like a lot of events, like can you speak on this queer event about how it's so difficult being queer, or can you speak on this Māori event about how being a Māori woman is really terrible, and you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) 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 Thanks for the reminder. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I was just, I was watching YouTube videos, but yeah, I guess, yeah, my life is not, not (laughs) ideal. (laughs) <laughs> and you know that people like have good intentions in doing this, and they're like, "Oh, we we want you to bring some representation or whatever." And you're like, "Oh, <sighs> <laughs> I guess so." Like, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, "I wish that I could be on the lovely white ladies panel about <laughs> like walking around the city or <laughs> something like that." Or like, you know, you like pick a flower and then say like how it relates to your work or something. 
You can pick a flower and then talk about like intergenerational trauma, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, pick a, you can pick a flower and talk yeah. about how we've read your book and we can tell that you've got mental illness. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, it's like a, it's hard between like kind of wanting representation to exist and like wanting these discussions to be had, but not necessarily wanting to do it yourself. Yeah. Or mm. like not wanting to fly to another city and talk about how your dad was illiterate or something. Mm, mm, mm. I think that's really hard. Mm. Hamali, does that impact your work at all? Do you feel any kind of pressure when you're writing? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, I'm always getting sort of invited to be an Asian New Zealand <laughs> writer. Um, but I do have to say, though, I mean, my friend Renee is sitting here. <laughs> and <laughs> sorry to, sorry to <laughs> bring you up, but she has really paved the way for me uh, as a, you know Asian New Zealand writer because of the work that she's done, you know, and that part of that has been obviously people calling her to represent um, Asian New Zealand writers and uh, etc. And when until you see somebody doing that, you don't feel that it's possible. Like when I think about the books that I read as a child, it was all about Enid Blyton and you know little white children doing stuff. I didn't read anything about Sri Lankan children doing doing adventures and having tea parties or whatever. So. Um, I think it's really important. I think increasingly writers are writing about different sorts of experiences, and that's really important for children in particular, just mm. to have that, to have that imagination to you know to, to foster. Mm. And yourself, Madeline, you ever felt pigeonholed as a writer or as a journalist? Um, I think because all of the first um, articles I wrote had nothing to do with uh, identity or anything. Um, I sort of managed to like slip in the side door and now I kind of, I embrace it. Like I quite like the idea of, um, especially as an editor, being able to actually go out and ask people to write these stories. Um, we do have often come into these tricky situations where somebody has a really good idea and they're really, really knowledgeable about it, but they're not at all connected to that community and mm. sometimes you do just accept them because to me having the story told is more important than having it told by a specific person obviously ideally we would get to the point where um, the right stories are told by the right people mm -hmm. but at the same time I didn't read any uh, most of the books in the same same as you most mm. of the books that I read were um, I assumed white children in them um, and white teenagers and so I have become a writer despite the lack of seeing myself or uh, represented either in authors or in the characters and at a certain point you do just need to put those characters in the books even if it's not that character themselves writing it so mm. I am kind of I'm not against, you know, uh, a very, I mean, they have to be good, but like a good non-Pacific person telling a Pacific story, if they tell it well, mm. it's not, mm. um, because our thing is just that they're not being told. And so mm. as long as they're being told, mm. then more people see them and then more mm. people are likely to want to write them in future. And then mm. that's how it grows. Mm. Um, if we kind of restrict it to the literally three other Samoan writers that I know mm. uh, that work in media and we have to tell all of the stories, mm. then we're not going to tell that many. So mm. we might as well sort of widen the, widen the pool and then let 
let people come up slowly. It's not, yeah, it's not mm. going to happen overnight. So you're not a proponent of the idea that you can only write about the community that you understand or that you have grounding in? I think you have to understand it. I don't mm. think you... The, the best writer that I've ever worked with who's written on like Pacific stories was... He was born in Fiji, um, but he does not consider himself to be a Pacific person. Mm. And I had to keep reminding him, like, no, 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 you have been in with these stories for over 10 years. Mm. You're, the, you're the person to tell them. And he kind of was like, oh, I don't know. It's, you know, maybe it's not mm. my place. And it's sort of like, mm. I mean, he probably was being too cautious about it. Um, but I was like, well, if you don't, no, no one else is. So, and you're right there and you know it. So that shouldn't be stopping you just because you don't feel like you are ethnically Pacific. Mm. Mm. Rebecca, this is, sorry. I was just going to say, the counter argument to that would be that when mostly white writers write about uh, other people's stories, maybe it doesn't leave space for, you know, the publication of pe um, stories by people of colour. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, we we also, I would love to have uh, people of colour write about things that aren't about being people of colour. Yes, so yes, yeah. there's like, yeah. that's also, we're just, those are sort of two separate battles, is telling more stories about these people, but also having more writers. Yes. Yeah. for anything so they don't always have to kind of align on that um, yes. or they're not mutually exclusive so yes, yes. no but I do think um, yeah sometimes when you go oh well this person's really good at this so we'll just let them do do it all the time it's yes. yeah yeah the sometimes necessity does breed innovation and, yes. and it makes it forces you to go out and find the people who aren't necessarily right in front of your face mm -mm. Um, having written a column for 50 years or something mm -mm. so mm. Yeah, no. uh, and I think, especially in movies, you know, when people who are, for example, not Asian, like Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> tries to play... She's not Asian? She's, not, she's Asian? She is Asian. Oh, oh okay, fine. <laughs> 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 tries to play a character who is Asian, when, you know, they could have chosen a gorgeous, like Michelle Yeoh or somebody, you know. And I think then that really um, sets the bar for people to not be allowed to be representative of their own own culture. Mm. So yeah, there's, there is, <coughs> like you said, there is a balance mm. between two different things. Sorry. Rebecca, why, this might be a facetious question, why is it important that you write about something that you're connected to? Um, because <laughs> I don't want to write something that I'm like, I don't want it to be shit. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily write things that are like totally like I'm like extremely connected to, but I wouldn't write about something that I was not at all knowledgeable about. Um, yeah, and I think that like what you're saying is that sometimes when you can't find sort of like the perfect person to represent things, I don't think that you should wait for that person to appear because that person is not going to appear if they haven't seen examples that are like kind of stepping stones to this happening. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of sort of like discourse about when you get an opportunity, you should sort of pass it along to someone mm. who's maybe like more marginalized. But I think you can only do that to an extent because, you know, then you're just kind of heaping all this work onto the most marginalized people and without examples of like what could be kind of created in this space or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that like, when you write a novel, you're only writing like one every like few years or something. Mm. So I just, 
I just couldn't be bothered being like, <laughs> you know, here's my book about a Sri Lankan beekeeper. <laughs> 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 oh, that would be. I mean, I used to, um, I used to book tours in Sri Lanka, so all I know is about when the good surfing conditions are on each side, and I mean, like that's an extremely rough start to that normal. <laughs> So I'm about to turn things over to you uh, for some audience questions. But before we do that, to round things off, I want to ask each of you to uh, explain, and this could be a piece of advice as an editor or, or as writers or as writing practitioners, how do you stop yourself from becoming a bad art friend? <laughs> Madeline, would you like to begin? Um, I think I'm kind of, um, I've moved away from, those situations a bit recently, but I have noticed any time I do write about something of my own experience, it is just sort of, you know, it's that kind of tidying your own house before um, messing with anyone else's. So I make sure that my own thoughts and feelings are, are the centre and the clearest. And oftentimes I will go, oh, maybe I'll put in like, you know, my friend said this or something. And usually it's actually kind of unnecessary. It's almost like you're using it just to back your own argument up and mm. you can actually just write it as your own thought. So mm. I I think maybe just focus, it sounds really narcissistic, but just like focusing on yourself and um, realising that for me, the, the person that I, in the kind of same way, is like the way that I can write the best is myself. It's the only person I know entirely and maybe not even then so I start there and then if it's like absolutely necessary bringing in other people but even then it's always very much from a this is how I perceived this person's actions rather than this this was this person's motivation I think that's where it kept is putting motivations on other people where they have not confirmed that to you um and it's and so I go from the uh, starting point of I've just observed this action and that's it and leaving it there and letting people um, put whatever they want on the motivation mm. what about you Hamad? I think um, definitely uh, you know really practicing show don't tell like don't write somebody is a narcissistic liar and a cheat and a philanderer but maybe show with what the actions that they do that this is what they are for example <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you're talking about someone in the beekeeping community. Uh, I'm, I'm invested Definitely. Now. <laughs> it's, it's quite a seditious community. <laughs> um, but, and, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, if I, like, you know, when you write something, uh, and sometimes our imagination just takes us places, right? You just, you know, write, 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 write. And um, you create something. I think for me, what I'm going to practice is leaving something for a while, coming back to it maybe after a month or so, and then looking back at it and making sure that I haven't appropriated somebody else's story. And also getting feedback from people from that community, you know, if it is a Pacific story or whatever. Um, and also just reminding myself that, um, like, society is not just about freedom. It's about community and it's about other people, you know, the French Revolution, blah, blah. <laughs> so liberty, equality and fraternity, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not just about my voice. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Rebecca, what about you? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe just hang out with people who aren't that interesting. Want to <laughs> 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 come up? But I mean, yeah, I think yeah, I I agree that I would only if I want to write something that I know about, but is totally just outside of my own experiences, then I would only write about that through a narrator who was observing this mm. and what they would think about that. I guess, yeah. Fantastic. Now we have time for a couple of questions. Um, start with Renee. <laughs> do you want me just to? Okay. I, do we have do we have a microphone or do oh we do have a microphone. Oh, okay. I just, I just throw my voice <laughs> um, is how do you deal with the ideas of story sovereignty when you're writing? And that is the idea that the story should be told by the people to whom the story belongs. Mm. Mm. So that's my question to all of you. Mm. Mm. Good question. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure anyone, well, anyone said that a story should be told by someone who doesn't know anything about it. I think that's the key thing is that when talking particularly, I guess, about sort of, let's just say, ethnicity um, or culture, there is a way to be, like, I, there are Samoan stories that I would never tell, and yet if I wrote them, people would assume that that was fine, and that's because I'm Samoan. I would not feel comfortable writing them, even though I am Samoan, because I don't know, and I know that there are Palangi people who know much more about that, and I would actually trust them a lot more to tell that story more than me, because of their place in the community. So it is, that's kind of what I meant by there's, these aren't, there aren't these strict lines of people who can tell because when it gets to that, then you start to go, you know, I also am Chinese and I would not tell Chinese stories because I have not had as much involvement in the Chinese community in New Zealand. I have mm. had some. Mm. And so it is just like, you can't just go, oh, that person's got, this thing in their bio mm. that means that you know mm. that's a pass that goes the other way as well mm. um and so and obviously it's quite rare that you get writers who are expert or you know um, um or like particularly like historians there's some historians who are incredible historians mm. um and are not necessarily don't have lived experience in those communities but they are very well respected mm. um for mm. that mm. and it is just a matter of, I don't consider it to be a solution, it's more of a, a part of on the way, like a st as Rebecca said, a stepping stone to getting to where we can mm. allow for this full story sovereignty. Mm. 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 That was really well, well put. Mm. Um, I'm going to go back out just to see if there's any more questions, just because we are running out of time. We have one at the back here. Hi. Um, yeah. I studied the Masters of Creative Writing and we, some interesting issues came up around this subject. Uh, one of our um, colleagues wanted to write a story about a Māori child 
she wasn't Māori. And within the group, there were challenges that came up around that. Uh, even though she had grown up maybe in an area where she had witnessed, so it was her perception of it. So it was really interesting because Stephanie Johnson came in and she was saying, well, during the 80s, nobody wrote stories about Māori people in their writing, and most of the writers were white writers. And so there's this whole period in New Zealand history of writing fiction that doesn't have many Māori characters because everyone mm. was being so careful. Mm. So I think this is a really important question because, you know, I, yeah, it, being white myself, um, I was trying to write a memoir about some experiences I had in Vanuatu back in 1992 and how it was my first time travelling to Pacific Islands and I was supposed to have the POV of being that person I was then and how I saw the local people. And, and I was told I was stuck and I wasn't writing it right, but I was supposed to try and be myself then. So it's, it's a really challenging thing. So I suppose my question is to, you know, the view of the sovereignty is, yeah, what are we going to do if the writers can't talk about all of the, the people and the characters in the story that is in the country that they're writing about or their experience, you know? Mm. How does sovereignty work in that environment if you're mm. trying to write a character that reflects mm. a multicultural society? Yes. That's, yeah. a, that's a great question. Mm. I mean, well, we're, um, uh, we're uh, trying to explore this idea. I think it is a little bit tricky mm. where the boundaries are. Mm. Um, Rebecca, I'm going to ask you because we okay. have <laughs> run out of time <laughs> <laughs> to give us your final thoughts. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> no I pressure you know, whatsoever. I can't solve racism in New Zealand. Um, I mean, that, that, that we could leave it here, actually. <laughs> None of us can but solve racism in New Zealand. Yeah, I think that, you know, to an extent, I think that people should just write whatever and then see what other people mm -hmm. kind of feedback to them from that. You oh. know, you could write this story and people could be like, this is really bad, you shouldn't have done this. Oh. And then, you know, hopefully people will be kind of open to being like, okay, I can see, you know, why this was no good mm, or whatever. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, there's it's just like, it's a big spectrum to be from being mm. like, don't completely mm. not include people of colour in literature at mm. all. Mm. And mm. also, like, don't pretend that you have had the experiences that you have never mm. had. Mm. And then kind of in between that, I think, is a sort of like... So the of optimal solution that mm. at the moment is only writing from an observational perspective and hopefully your observations weren't incredibly racist like mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, if i could say uh, i mean i think what we've had what we're you know reacting to is hundreds of years of uh one viewpoint which is largely a, a pakiha or you know white viewpoint in writing and the pendulum is now swinging the other way but it, maybe it's swinging quite far and at some point, I'm hoping that it, w it will come back to a good medium where we can movement. have all of these things, you know? So, yeah. yeah, everyone's so, yeah. still figuring it out, I think. Yeah. Everyone is still figuring it <laughs> out. Yeah. There we go. And I think there is space. But Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Himali McInnes, Rebecca K. Riley, and Madeline Chapman, can we please give them a massive round of applause? Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.